we, um, I think right now in our culture, are in an identity epidemic where we have people struggling to figure out who they are. And so many voices pouring into that identity of who we are supposed to be. And I think a lot of that issue for us, especially for those of us who follow Jesus, comes from kind of the foundational question that we begin our life and our discipleship with. And it's this question, what is God's will for my life? And if we were to kind of simplify it and dumb it down and kind of take off the theology of it, just simply, what am I supposed to do? What what am I supposed to do? And I think this is highlighted so much um, by the philosopher, the theologian Dallas Willard, who talks about a theology of sin management, that we've developed this gospel of sin management. That for us, so much of what we say when we mean or talk about gospel is about what we do. There are certain things as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, that we are supposed to do, and there are certain things that we're not supposed to do. And so we know that we're not supposed to go and drink or do drugs or smoke or um, you, you can kind of, you know the list, you've been around long enough that you've heard them. But then there are some things that you're supposed to do and you're supposed to go to church and you're supposed to talk a certain way and treat people a certain way. And there's so many things that these define your life because you do them and you're a Christian and there's so many things that you don't do because you're a Christian or you're not supposed to do. And that theology the gospel of sin management has seeped into our culture, especially when you start talking to um, Generation X and down, millennials and Generation Z, this understanding of who we are. Christian Smith is a researcher and a professor out of North Carolina, North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and he did a research project back in the mid-2000s And he talked about the greatest or the most popular growing religion of our day. And this this research, um, he, he had to come up with an actual name for this religion. Because he looked, it wasn't really Christianity, it wasn't Muslims, it wasn't um, Hindu, it wasn't a lot of these world religions that we normally think of. And he labeled this number one religion moral therapeutic deism. Pretty simple, right? The moral, God wants me to be a good person. Therapeutic, I need to feel good about myself. And deism, there is a God, but the overall idea that he's not really involved in that um, big of a part of my life. And so this moral therapeutic deism coupled with this gospel of sin management, there are some things that I'm supposed to do, there's some things that I'm not supposed to do, and everything that we are as followers of Jesus has become whittled down to this idea of what do I do. And I wonder if maybe there is a better question than simply what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? And my, my assumption is if we can ask a better question 
and learn to answer that biblically, it will affect the way we answer the first question. And my, here's what I know about you, because it's true about me just as it's true about you. The answer to this question that we're going to talk about is so much more a heart question than a head question. Because when I ask this question, in your head, every single one of us is going to jump to, yeah, we know that. We got that. That's good. But I'm not so concerned about this question really getting in here as I am the answer to this question really sinking in here. So here's the question. Who am I? Now, I I know in your head you know the answer. And I'm sure you can show me for a lot of you book, chapter, and verse. But I wonder. I wonder if the answer to that identity question has gotten past here, down into here. Because every day you are surrounded by voices who want to try to answer that question for you. To tell you who you are and what your identity is. To tell you who you are um, economically. To tell you who you are politically. To tell you who you are in our culture, in our society. So many of these voices pouring into your life. And here's the problem. With so many voices, with so many voices trying to tell you who you are supposed to be based on what you do. Because we live in a culture of achievement and accomplishment. And who you are is almost always defined by what you do. That is our culture. But if you lose sight of the identity you have been given vertically, you will search for it everywhere horizontally. If you lose sight of the identity you have been given vertically, you will search for it everywhere horizontally. And you will ask other people to tell you who and define who you are. I think one of the most powerful examples in all of Scripture is Jacob. Jacob is told by his mother, you're going to go into your father, you're going to pretend to be your brother so that you can get your blessing, to get what's not yours. And Jacob listens to his mother, he goes in, he deceives his father, and then he spends his life running from the identity that he's created, that he allowed someone else to create in him. And I know what you're thinking, oh, oh it's, it's, that's a mom influencing her son. Little, little history lesson real quick. At this point of the story, Jacob and Esau are 70 years old. You know, kids these days. <laughs> Allowing someone else at 70 Like at some point you cut the string, right? At at some point you've got to figure out who you are. 
And Jacob allows this new identity that someone else has given him to create a life that he's forced to run from. So I want to look just real briefly at some theology of of who we are as people. Going back to Genesis chapter 1. God says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree with, that has fruit and, or, excuse me, every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So here in this initial act of creation, God is creating man and woman in his image, in the image of God, that they would bear this image, his final act of creation, the completion of this creation project. He makes man and woman in his image. And as you look through this opening part, he puts them in the garden to work it, to take care of it. In the beginning, God gives them this identity. And their identity would shape and form what they do. It does not begin with what they do. It begins with who they are. And out of who they are comes what they do. What are you to do in this creation, in this garden? You are to be a reflection and a representation of me. He he gives them as divine image bearers these tasks to order and care for the creation. To work the ground, to take care of it, to help creation go somewhere. To produce food to take care of the ground, to participate, secondly, to participate in the continual act of creation. God does not create trees and then start creating more trees. He creates trees with the ability to produce themselves, reproduce themselves, and plants and animals with the ability to reproduce themselves, and people, if you're below sixth grade, we'll talk about that later, people with the ability to reproduce themselves. And so they are to order and care for creation. They are to participate in the continual act of creation. And then, lastly, they're to represent God to this world. They're God's divine image bearers. 
to be his priests, to be his representatives in this world. And that is what this phrase in Latin, imago Dei, means. Image of God. There's a story found in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 22. It says the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words, talking about Jesus. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to what they or who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So, so Jesus is walking around in this crowd is trying to trap him. And they ask him this question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So Jesus is approached by these people. Who is a coin? Who, like real money. Not a car. Joyce, yes. Can I, can I have a quarter? Anyone? Here, here. A quarter. And whose image do you see on there? George Washington. Correct. Washington. So he takes, thank you. <laughs> Anyone got a hundred? We're going, we're going to Sizzler after lunch, or for lunch, babe. Um, I know. <laughs> Joyce has a dollar. I'll, I'll just keep a quarter. I don't want people to think I'm greedy. Whose image do you see? And they say, well, we see Caesar's. He says, whose inscription is on there? Well, it's, it's Caesar's inscription. And then Jesus looks back at him and says, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar. And I imagine he just tossed the coin back to them and said, but give to God what is God's? And I wonder if there's this part of the story that we're supposed to kind of pick up where Jesus just kind of starts looking around after he's given the coin back and says, wait, now tell me, whose image do you see? Because then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And I think there's this powerful point of the story that this story is not really about Jesus making a point to pay your taxes. It's about this divine image that you and I bear. 
You got the coin? Great. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. I don't remember growing up a whole lot of times where my parents really tried to embed this idea in me. I knew it here. Yes, I'm made in God's image that my life is to be given back to him. I I get that. I, I got it here. But my question, has it really taken heart here? Deep down in your heart, in your soul, do you know who you represent? Do you know whose image you are created in? Because this has some profound, profound applications. There, There are some profound meaning if we truly understand this. So I want to tell you four reasons why the Imago Day matters, and then I want to tell you about my friend Dan. First of all, the Imago Day matters for your own self-image. See, this goes deeper than what you have done or what you will do. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by your mistakes. And no one else can tell you who you are except for the one who created you. And you can search everywhere for your identity. And I promise you, everyone will tell you it is something different. It is found in something else. Almost always found in what you do. And God will look at you and say, you are my child. I love you and you are made in my image. You you are created. That's one of the most amazing things about having children. And maybe one of the most humbling. Because within our children, we see ourselves. We, We see ourselves. The good and the bad we see in our children. And you bear this image, the image of the creator. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. You are valuable and you matter regardless of what you have done, what you have been through, where you have come from, you matter. It is something you are, not something that you do. Secondly, the Imago Dei matters for how we treat other people. For how we treat them. Because the more people you are around the more of God's image you see. 
And I know that sounds so counterculture, countercultural, because we see in people so much bad, and we see evil. And we look and we say, that's so much not what God is like. But deep within every single person you come across is this divine image that they bear. They are created in the image of God Almighty. Mankind was from the beginning. James, in chapter 3, he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. C.S. Lewis, in one of his sermons, writes, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and civilizations, these are mortal because they're going to end. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. This does not mean that we are not to be perpet or that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. The weight of your neighbor's glory is a burden you should put on your back every day. And only humility will carry it. Every person that you meet Every person who comes across your path, you need to treat with sacredness and reverence and respect and concern and kindness, never writing people off. And I will tell you, that is really difficult to do. Third, it matters the Imago Dei matters for civil rights. Race, nationality, class do not set people apart. We are one race. In Genesis, God talks about giving an account. And in chapter 9, he says, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. That we have this responsibility. That we are to treat one another regardless of age, sex, economics, politics. We are to treat them with respect and dignity and concern. Martin Luther King, 
in one of his sermons, says, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected to have fellowship with him. And this gives him a uniqueness, a worth, a dignity. And we must never forget this is a nation. There are no gradations of the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. And something happens when we don't really grasp that. As people, if we don't really grasp the whole image of God and we don't see other people made in God's image, we have a huge problem. What happens when you don't see people in the image of God? Then you have to have a way to determine their worth and value. If it's not the image of God within them that makes them worthy of rights and respect and protection, we have a philosophical problem. And a lot of philosophers nowadays will say, well, then how do we determine, if we don't believe in the image of God, how do we determine people, whether they're worthy of respect and rights and protection? And it's always grounded in their capacities, their capacity to reason. Do they have a a consciousness? Can they make decisions? A capacity to make moral choices, to know right from wrong. A capacity for what some would call preferences. Peter Singer is a philosopher and an ethicist at Princeton University. And he says human rights are grounded in capacities. But there's a problem with that. Here's what Singer goes on to say. I believe the Supreme Court was right when he said abortion was right for all. Or abortion is all right. But here's where that creates a problem philosophically for us. If we believe that abortion is right because of capacities, then an unborn infant doesn't have the capacities to choose. Guess what? Neither does a born infant have the ability to reason have the ability to reflect, to make moral choices. Neither does someone who has um, limited mental capacity. Neither does an older person suffering with dementia. And the system starts to spiral out of control. It's interesting that some of the very first um, things that the Christians did in these early churches was they started going into these leper communities and orphanages where children were discarded and seen as unvaluable and taking care of them and loving them because society didn't see a use for them. I think that's one of the most important reasons the image of God matters in our world today that we've lost sight of. And fourthly, it matters for what you do. And when we started with the what you do question and what's God's will for my life, and we said there's probably a better question we need to ask, who am I? And if we get that question right, then we'll get this question right. 
What is it that I do? Because what you do matters. But what we've been grown or what we've grown up with is this idea that evangelism is going to people and telling them what's wrong with them. What they're doing wrong. What they need to do right. It goes back to the gospel of sin management. But what if we we flipped our lenses? What if we began to look at evangelism in a different way? Rather going to a world and telling them what they are doing wrong, what if we were to go to them and tell them, you bear the image of God? You are more Christ-like than you could ever imagine because you bear that image. Maybe. Maybe people have been told long enough that they're not good enough. And maybe they need to be told you are. You are dearly loved by God. Because what we say about us, what I said about us, if we'll grasp the truth of the first question, who am I? then we'll get the second question, what do I do right? What if we began to pour into people that you are created in the image of God and call people back to their original vocation? You were made in the image of God to reflect him and represent him in this world. You have a purpose and you matter. And you're not defined by what you do. See, it sounds pretty good for us when we talk about us collectively who are sitting in here, who believe that up here, but aren't sure we've grasped it in here. But the truth of the matter is the world needs to hear that too. Because the world, humankind, bear the image of their creator. And it is our responsibility to call them back to that original vocation. To point out to them the image that they bear. This is my friend Dan. I worked with Dan for a few years in Cleburne when I first started in ministry. And Dan was on staff and after he finished on staff, he decided that he was going to work at Walmart. And he started out as a Walmart greeter, working at the door, and people would come by and talk to Dan. And the managers started to notice that everyone liked to go out Dan's door. And people weren't in a hurry to get home. And then Dan got promoted to cash register, to cashier. And they would notice that Dan's line was always longer than the other lines. And there would be lines that were open and available, but yet people were lined up to go through Dan's registry because they wanted to talk to Mr. Dan. And Dan had the uncanny knack to make you feel like you were the only person in the world at the moment you were talking to him. 
And he had the ability to make people, regardless of race or class or gender, to feel like they mattered. And when you were talking to Dan, I promise you, Dan's eyes would never leave your face. And as a 23-year-old kid, I can tell you I didn't appreciate it that much. And as I was having conversations with Dan and his eyes locked on me, I'm looking around trying to figure out what I do. Dan's eyes never left my face. And Dan would leave everyone as they were walking away with some little pun or joke. But he would always say, remember, God loves you. This is at Walmart in the cashier line. And about a year ago, Dan had hip surgery. And I found him actually like this. We were in Cleburne um, last year without the hat, and he was riding around on this scooter. I said, Dan, what, what are you doing? He goes, well, I had hip surgery. And Walmart didn't want me to take any time off because they said I was good for business. <laughs> I said, so, so what are you doing now? He goes, well, they got me working security. <laughs> You come back here now, you kid. <laughs> but they saw something in Dan that they could not de deny. And I don't know if, if Walmart executives in Cleburne, Texas would look and say, you know what, he is the most Christ-like person I could imagine working in our store. But I can tell you one thing. They would say our customers see something different in them. Because no matter how rude the customer is, how big of a hurry they are in, Dan always lets them know they are loved by God. And in a world that has our identities stolen, in a world that so many voices are trying to tell you who you are and people all around us, there is this divine mission that we participate in that we are to tell people you are dearly loved and created in the image of God and you matter and you are not defined by what you do or what you have done or by your past. You are simply divine, defined by the image you bear. And the image you bear speaks more to your life than anything that I could ever say to you. And so we just simply ask this question this morning. Whose image do you see? And not whose image do you realize up here. But deep, deep within your soul within your being, whose image do you see? See, this identity epidemic can only be fixed as we begin to see ourselves as we are, as image bearers of the King. 
and see the world around us that we interact with on a daily basis as those who bear that divine image, as we call them back to their vocation, to their purpose, to the reason they are. Father, today, may this message, may this, <clears throat> may this image we bear sink deep within our heart and our soul. May it be what defines us above what everyone else says, how everyone else wants to label us. May we see ourselves <clears throat> bearing the divine image of Jesus, of God the creator, and Father, may we find our life in you. And may we reclaim this mission to give people a purpose and a sense of belonging and identity outside of what they do. May we help them grasp who they really are. Because Father, I believe that this changes everything. And so, Father, today I pray simply just for us as a church that we individually would grasp hold of that. Because this understanding, I think, changes everything. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for creating us, for giving us a purpose, for giving us mission. Father, may we find ourselves in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.